Lou Penrod. My guest today is my friend, Julie Cotton. She is the founder of Next Level Improv and Make Believe in You, Inc. Julie, welcome. Thank you, Emily. How are you? I'm doing great. Now, these are two different companies. Can you explain the difference between them? Yes, I can. Next Level Improv is the for-profit aspect of the company, and it is designed primarily to bring improv and acting and uh, movement, performance art-based skill sets and practices to every man, if you will, to to the layman, to uh, industries, to corporations, to organizations, to individuals and groups. That happens through a couple of different formats. It can look like one-on-one coaching for people looking to get better at public speaking or build their confidence for a presentation or for a job interview or for an audition. It can also look like groups working together to build healthier, happier teams, uh, to amp up collaboration. If it's a brand new group and they just want to do some icebreakers, improv is such a great technology to uh, build cohesion uh, amidst a group and enhance creativity and productivity. So those are some basic applications. And our most recent venture for Next Level Improv is getting into um, local and national conventions where uh, they might be in search of a, a keynote address for particular audiences, and uh, we're excited to be to be branching out in that way and then having breakout sessions for participants. Uh, and so that's all next-level improv. Then my what I was finding is there were so many people that love improv, that get improv, that want more access to improv in in environments like um, educational environments, in classrooms, in, uh, in rehabilitation or recovery facilities, wanting to use improv as a technology as part of the therapeutic model, improv in um, care for the caregivers type settings. So really, Make Believe in You came out of a request from the communities that I am, am around and involved in where we really saw it as a a healing modality in and of itself and that really what we're healing is this sense of make-believe or play pretend right when we make stuff up we make believe but also that the core of that is being willing to make believe in me or make believe in you and I would find this most frequently with women um, but I would find it across the board especially uh, in some of the audiences and and, um, groups that I've just mentioned, where people had fallen out of love with themselves or they didn't believe in themselves anymore. There had been this core disconnect for the value of the self. And so how do I use improv now as a way to call forth and reignite that love for self out of which we can then love others? That. That makes a lot of sense, and, and I've seen it. I, I've taught in a special ed classroom in a high school and have seen those students who are just struggling in every subject but drama, and there they flourish and shine. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, definitely. That's, that is uh, the core of that, the vision of that company, and, and it's 
what happened to our inner child, right? Like at what point did we stop dreaming or at what point do we stop believing? If we do, you know, there are those who don't, or maybe they only forget for a moment or two and really, um, yeah, how I see improv and acting and comedy, especially laughter is so healing is it really is this bridge back to that, that younger, more creative version of ourselves. I can see how that would be so healing. My observation in a large public high school is the minority of the students are feeling comfortable with themselves and the majority mm-hmm. doubt and feel insecure. You can see it as they walk down the hall, the you know, the shoulders are hunched, the eyes are down on the ground. Yeah. You see it in the classroom. Yeah. They're they don't it's- want to participate. Yeah, and I'm not sure. I think each each child's story is slightly different. Um, even even the big kids, right? The adults, like we're just we're just big kids. And at what point is it that we start turning in or or curling in? Or you know, I look at women as we even young girls as they develop or hit puberty. I think there's this coming of age that happens, and either we step into it with bravado or we shy away from our own our own power, our own beauty, our own right to be something other than what we've known ourselves to be as younger kids. So it's, it is interesting to see when and where the disconnect happens for uh, each individual child. Uh, and then how long and how far into our adulthood do we carry that disconnect? Uh, how deep does it go? Yes. And it's the foundation of student success. Students mm-hmm. don't progress and learn if they're so, if they're, they're turned inward and they're so afraid of, being ridiculed that they don't even want to speak up. Yes. You're speaking right to it. It's they don't, we don't succeed if we don't believe we can. And there, there is a point for so many kids where they, that belief just burns out like a, like a light that's within that gets shadowed or covered up. And, and really what I see is possible is using this, this as a fun tool or mechanism or practice and it can be built it can be developed like a muscle you know like you take your body to the gym you know we can take our imaginations to the gym too and and really remember what it is to play with that childlike wonder again this is such valuable information for schools and for everyone how did you get involved in it how did you start out i had been doing this forever. So I was a nine-year-old girl and I loved theater. I loved drama. I wanted to get involved. And I think that came out of my own home life being somewhat what I would classify as turbulent. Parents were very kind of argumentative. My mom suffered from bipolar, manic depression. My dad was super like moody and would, could get really angry really fast. So I ran to the theater arts. I ran to drama so that I could get away from that kind of negative home environment and, and play and, and kind of be anybody but who I, who I had to go home to, right? So I remember sitting in a classroom when I was nine years old, and there was this tour acting company called Child's Play back in Arizona, where I'm from. And they came into my class. There was a gymnasium. They, they had this pop-up set that they brought in a van with costumes and everything, music. And I would just remember just being mesmerized, transported to this other world. And I sat there as a little nine-year-old watching this 45-minute play saying, I want to do that when I grow up. 
And fast forward, uh, when I was 21 years old, sure enough, I worked for that very company in Phoenix. And I toured with them for five years. So it was really kind of been magical. I sat, I sat there as a kid and I believed that I could and I created a life that was congruent with that belief. That is awesome. I mm-hmm. applaud you for, at nine years old. You know, that that's, but, you know, truly successful people do that. They identify mm-hmm. what they want. They set goals. They go for them. That is really wonderful. Now, you've talked about how it benefits students. I can see this. I can just see how bringing this to high schools, especially with students with special needs, would just really help the students flourish. How does it benefit teachers? So much, so much so. I I actually was a theater education major uh, in my undergraduate studies, so I learned a lot of uh, a lot of techniques for accelerated and experiential learning, uh, both in school and then also later in life when I got into more transformational uh, personal development work. But knowing the the way that your kids learn, knowing, you know, if I have some kids in the room that are auditory learners or kinesthetic learner or visual learners, then I can adapt and really meet my kids. So it's almost me as the teacher becoming the actor or the chameleon and being willing to meet my students wherever they uh, most respond. So having these tools, these these games or exercises that come from improv and the acting world and the performing world in your back pocket or in your toolbox, so to speak, for when you might need to engage your students, when you might need to, you know, put in a state change in the middle of maybe a 30-minute segment or something where you're kind of losing the kids on a concept, you know, you just bring bring the classroom to life or bring bring these ideas to life and actually have them embody them and act them out or play, you know, play through a historical event or I've done, you know, uh, anti-bullying uh, or conflict resolution role playing. There's so many different ways that you can use these experiential tools, especially in um, with students with with special needs and diverse needs. I, uh, I remember there's a time where I worked at a school that was, um, you know, older kids love. 15 to 22, it was a transitional school where they were getting them out of the classroom and into the workforce. And I remember using theater arts and also music as a way to really uh, bridge gaps because the performing arts are so um, emotionally based. They're felt in our bodies. It's, it, it's very experiential. And so it can, it can be this, this segue or this way to bridge in um, to a very heart-centered part of the learner, so the teacher having access to that, and also the teacher getting to play. I think it's really an invaluable tool. Can make the job fun. Yes, exactly. It's interesting. Yeah, a lot of teachers take the approach, you know, they have one teaching method, they lecture, they expect students to take notes, and that's probably effective with maybe 10% of high school students. Yeah, if that, so yeah. Having that arsenal, this this really makes, you know, it makes the teacher's job easier. Some may think, mm-hmm. oh, I have to do learn and do all these things, but it makes them pos- it possible for the teacher to reach every learning style she has in her classroom. And there's usually Absolutely. a wide variety. You used a term I want to bring up again. I think it was state change. And, and I know yes. exactly what you mean. 
where, you know, the students, you can see that you're losing mm -hmm. interest, that they're getting sleepy, it's just after lunch, or restless. So talk about how would this be used to create, I'm assuming you mean like a change in their emotional state? Talk about I think yeah. state change. It is, yes. It's a uh, you know a term that you, I've heard throughout uh, personal development uh, in neurolinguistic programming. They talk about it NLP, um, but it's basically exactly what you're saying. It's a it's a pattern interrupt. So, and it's designed. Uh, you mentioned changing their emotional state, but the most uh, direct way to do that is to interrupt their physiological state, their physical state. So to actually give them a physical activity that that puts the body into motion will automatically uh, release you know, hormones and endorphins and things to get the body moving. It pumps blood through the body and through the brain, ideally, which is where we typically tend to, like, get that glossed over look with students. So, yeah, it's giving them something physical to do that doesn't require a lot of thinking. It could be something as simple as, you know, standing up and stretching or running in place or doing some jumping jacks or, you know, in the case with improv, you would actually do uh, more of a task oriented or, or a scene, like a scenic, everybody uh, moves around the space like a, some kind of animal or something. And then you have them freeze and hold their space. So now they're having to exercise body control. And, you know, so there's a lot of, so many different ways. Uh, it could be as simple as giving the person next to you a high five and telling them that they're awesome. You know, just really simple, simple things that, that pull them out of, wherever they were in that kind of mental glaze phase and, and pops them back into the present moment. And, and so it doesn't have to be complicated or somehow elaborately woven into the lesson plan. It can just be very spontaneous. Not at all. Exactly. Yep. Improv is spontaneous. That's, <laughs> That's completely right. made up in the moment. Yes. Yeah. I can see how that would keep them alive. I, I taught at a school where the history teacher would dress up when they talked about the Civil War. He would come in, you know, in, in uniform and mm -hmm. he would dress from the era that they were talking about. And I know the students yeah. loved his class. And then he hung models of um, airplanes from World War One and World War Two are hanging from his ceiling, and so. yes, anything like that. Any we call that uh, object lesson. Anything where you can give a student a, a real world example of what it is you're speaking about will catch their interest and act as an anchor in their system, so that they retain the information better. They're like, oh yeah, Napoleon, the funny hat guy, or whatever. You know, like they ha you give them a visual cue like that, and especially if they have the opportunity to physically handle it themselves. So like, let's say you're in a math class or something and you, you toss a, a basketball around the room and you're speaking about circumference. I mean, something so simple as that could have them remember what that actually means outside of just a page of paper. Yeah, I, I know um, we learned that there are some visual learners, some auditory learners, tactile, and improv mm -hmm. would actually incorporate all of them. Correct. Yep, that's when we, uh, when I was working for Child's Play, we actually would tour around, we would do a show for school, and then we would uh, possibly be brought into the classroom to speak more in depth about a particular 
concept or theme of the show. We had one around multiculturalism, one around uh, like physical identity or, or beauty and, and what that really means. We had one that was like a, a, a anti-bullying type of, of play. So we would go into the classroom and then work with students and give them the chance to put it on, to, to try it on, so to speak. And, and if we break it down to three basic uh, tools that actors have. We have our body, our voice, and our imagination. And so those are, you know, body is physical, <laughs> you know, voice is auditory. Uh, and, and imagination can be, you know, the body's kinesthetic as well as visual, right? The body can use all of that. And the mind's eye is what visualizes anything that's going to come out of the mouth. We see it first as like a as a, a visual in the mind before we can even utter or put thoughts or words to it. The words then are just symbols of what we see in our mind. Yes, yes. You mentioned that you worked with students with special needs. What did yes. you find to be especially effective there? I, I can imagine that it's powerful, but give us some special notes on yeah. that. Well, I, I was fortunate enough at this particular school to be their music teacher. And what I, I took that to, you know, I, I kind of took carte blanche with that. I created a choir. I had some lower functioning and higher functioning kids. And so I combined them, you know, based on their, uh, their abilities and their interests and things like that. So some of my, my kids that, that maybe weren't as, as physical, I actually worked with them physically. So we would do movement classes and I brought in, a, um, I was, I'm also a healer. I do massage therapy and I brought it, I was working with the American Repertory Ballet. This was in New Jersey and I brought in one of the ballerinas to come in and, and do uh, a day with them. And we, we took like a field trip to go watch the ballet. So we ended up doing some of Clara's Nutcracker as part of our Christmas concert that year. And, you know, we worked with the, the adults that were across the, across the campus from us that were more of the work study students. And they came over, we did Christmas carols. So, it, I mean, there's really a lot that you can do. On my higher functioning guys, um, they were, we, we actually started like a stomp group. <laughs> so, you know, it's just such a great way to get energy out, right? And like to give them things to, to hit and, and like move. And if so it became more choreographed, it was very intentional. We would accompany music or something, but to give them a way to express and have that energy welcomed rather than you know shut down and be like oh no don't express that well here's a way to express that and it's perfectly acceptable <laughs> and even encouraged yes, yes. <laughs> that yes, was yes. wonderful and, and how did they respond to it what did it how did it benefit them well it was it seemed very well received their attitude their moods i mean i remember um you know there was one the one girl that got to play clara she was just so excited. I mean, like, one of, one of the best things about being um, a teacher working with students with, with special needs or disabilities, I, I was the one that was learning. Like, talk about utter love and appreciation and really just seeing true, authentic expression of joy or gratitude. Like, that, I could tell that they were just so excited and happy to be able to go to music or to go to movement class or to, you know, dance class or whatever. It was, it was in nothing that I could necessarily say that they said to me. It was a, a feeling that I got from being around them and the, the anticipation and the, you know, how we, how we participated together was always something that I treasured, I know. And from what I observed, I, you know, I make up that they had a great time too. 
I'm sure they did, and my experience has been that success breeds success. If they can feel, have one successful experience in school, then they start mm-hmm. to think, I'm capable, I can, I'm, I have value, and they're mm-hmm. willing to try for another and have yeah. another success. So I, I am quite sure that they benefited richly from that program. Yeah. Well, about improv, uh, and that's one of the biggest tenets of improv is to celebrate everything. So we, we don't necessarily call it a failure in improv. We would simply call it a variation. And so that every offering that is given up is, you know, we applaud or we cheer. So it's, it is like, that was great. You thought you went for it, you know, whether or not it, it was, you know, because how do you know that you're getting improv wrong? There is no script. You know, it's not like you're being, you're being judged and like there's no obligation to actually be funny. You know, it's simply are you being authentic? Are you listening? Are you responding and playing team with your with your peers? You know, and, and so there's really no way to, to lose improv. Uh, it's, you're always winning even when you quote unquote fail. There is no wrong way to do it. Mm-hmm. That is so powerful and I think that's so key I I have heard and I I have observed many times parents who have a child with special needs are on some level consciously or unconsciously comparing their child to their neighbors and you know is my child doing as well in school as you know somebody else's child is my child measuring up and to get that perspective that there's no wrong way to learn. Mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah, that it's, it can so- be so freeing. It, it Like to give you, as a parent too, like what a relief from this obligatory like weight that we carry around that there's like only one way to be a great parent or, or a good parent equals these results from my child. You know, I, to me, happy kids are, you know, those are successful parents. Are your children joyful, you know, because to, to succeed at a really high level on paper and to be miserable in your heart, like that's not a life. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, that's no way to live life. And you know, to teach children to be happy as they learn. Can we be happy learners and be more than willing to get stuff wrong and continue to be a student and, and be be curious, that childlike curiosity, rather than thinking I have to do it right all the time. It's a lot of pressure. It is. It is. And where we sometimes get so caught up on test scores and grades And yet there are those circumstances where if your child gets a C in a particular class, you maybe you should celebrate. That is their supreme best. Mm -hmm. This is good news. And maybe the best, you know, we wanted, you know, we're in the process of designing all these end of level tests and how do you prove a student has enough knowledge to earn a high school diploma, maybe the most important question to evaluate our school system is, are our students happy? Mm, That's a powerful question. (laughs) I mean, could we, could we ask that question of our, of our adult student, you know, of our, our, our adult kids? Because I think we're all just big kids, you know, like, are we living happy lives? 
yes. happiness to me is, is a true, um, is, is the fruit of well-being, of a well-rounded, a well-educated person to me is living a joyful, peaceful, happy life. Yes. And, and what do you do when someone says, oh, I'm bored? And to me, I'm thinking, <laughs> oh, you're missing it. <laughs> you know? There's no reason in this life to be bored. Well, what that tells me is that there, so, you know, I, from an improv perspective, I always look through the lens of life as a game. And to uh-huh. me, the game that they're playing is no longer a challenge to them. So uh-huh. boredom for me is a disengage. And that as a teacher, it becomes my responsibility then to find out what excites them, where does their passion lie and have them play a game in that domain. So when an adult feels I'm becoming bored in my job, then it's time to set new goals, stretch yeah, time to zone. Play. Absolutely. You got it. It's like, okay, so this, the way I've been doing this is now uh, it's boring to me or I've become complacent or apathetic. So cool. That just lets me know that there's another level of, engagement, another level of participation for me. It's like, now, how do I find the game in work? What is, what can I make uh, exciting or fun for me? Uh, what, what tasks that might be mundane, can I amp up and bring to a new level or see from another perspective? And that's where, I mean, acting for me is like, okay, cool. Here's my menagerie of characters. Who can I give stage time to today that would have a really fun time doing this mundane task? You know, <laughs> it's like, okay, well, I have a part of me that loves to organize and clean. So I'm going to let her step onto the stage today and handle these tasks. Whereas there's this other part of me that really likes to be around people. And so when it comes time to do this presentation or this talk, she's going to get the microphone, right? So I, I like, I have this kind of internal cast of characters that I will give, uh, give the limelight to get depending on the task that I'm up to. And I, I think it's critical. Let's, let's be very clear. This is not pretending or faking. This is just using authentic parts of your Versions personality. Of myself. Yes. Absolutely. And I've, I've come to know them as, as me. And, and there were times where I would compartmentalize. I mean, they're all me and they're just different expressions or different iterations of me. Yes. Um, and, and this, this allowing me to be all of the versions of me, knowing that there's a time and a place for her to shine, uh, it doesn't feel fake. And I think what you're speaking to right now, Emma Lou, is, is a very common misnomer of the acting profession. And I yes. speak on this, uh, I've spoken on it many times of the, uh, authentic, like actor, and authenticity that that the actor the way I have acting and this was in a book that I, I recently wrote that came out the end of December with Paul Fink we we are actors let's say in the paradigm that I'm present we are actors we're all actors we've been doing it our whole lives we play tons of roles and when I am my most authentic self I, I play the role of actor which means I can step into the character versions of me and all her iterations. So when I feel stressed, it's usually because I've identified as a character version of myself only. And so that version of me doesn't have access to all the flexibility that my actor self does. So really looking to use acting as a way to uh, experience more freedom, 
and joy in life and more deliberate creating, which to me, authentic is author, right? I'm authoring my life in every moment, but not when I think that I'm only one character. And so really giving myself the freedom to be all of it. And it allows you to lead a rich and full life. I love it. You mentioned you were also a massage therapist. So it sounds like along with your many roles, you've worn many hats. Tell us. Correct. Well, this, yeah, this has been a part of, um, as an actor, it's always, uh, it's great to have multiple talents or skill sets. So I have been an eternal student. I'm always fascinated at learning new, new things and new skills and when I find something that I personally enjoy, I like to get in there and just get masterful at it. So um, massage healing came around after graduate school. Um, a lot of my friends were going off into New York City to become waiters or bartenders. <laughs> I was like, you know, I'm going to go ahead and opt out. I did that. You know, I put myself through undergrad with the restaurant business. So grateful for that, that period of my life as well. And you know, after grad school, I was, I was in a different place in a different conversation. So I've actually started studying martial arts as well and Pilates and movement really heavily. And then, so the healing arts just became a very, a great fit because as a martial artist, I was going for massages or, you know, chiropractic work or whatever to, to keep my body healthy enough to continue to train. And so I, I love the benefits I receive from massage and I love to give things that I know people really appreciate. So to become uh, an expert in the arts of massage healing was, was something that definitely called to me. And I saw the value for not only for myself, but for the world. Yes, I agree. So massage therapist, improv teacher, <laughs> and you wrote a book. I did. I was a contributing author to a really powerful book um, that came out again last year, uh, be, be a success magic, how to, how to do it different, how, how ordinary people create extraordinary results. Um, and again, I, I spoke about uh, improv as a spiritual practice in that book, which is the synergy of, of what I feel is, is my two, uh, <laughs> my two faces, if you will, the two sides of me, two characters, two hats I wear. Uh, the healing hat and this actor improv hat. And to me, improv is very healing and it, and it became, and an of course, to use it as a, as a healing modality or technology. And that's, that's really the work that I'm up to right now is, is let's, let's play and let's heal our lives. And healing for me, when I use that term, I don't mean that there's anything wrong or that there's anything that needs to be fixed. I think that's another uh, misunderstanding that a lot of people have about healing, but healing comes from the sense of wholeness. Yes. And what I find is that improv reminds me that I'm whole already. And it gives me access to all the parts that I've closed myself off to um, as, as does body work. When I, when I, you know, release tension and tightness in the body or, or, you know, perhaps areas that have been injured or have trauma when I release that and I allow flow to get from the heart to all of the muscles and the extremities, and then I strengthen those, like there's the other part of the, of the being able to use the body comes from strength and flexibility. That's the same thing that we're doing in improv. One, one has to do with making the body whole and coming from the whole self. And then the other to me is, is really the imagination and making that, that connection to creative self, creator self whole as well and really giving ourselves access to all of it 
Yes. And you also coach then. You mentioned that using improv to help someone gain confidence. Yes. Yeah, if somebody were to, let's say, they have a, a speech coming up or they're they're doing a presentation or, or a pitch or, or even getting, you know, they want to go for a new interview and they haven't yet, they don't feel confident. There's something that has them experience anxiety or stress about speaking in public. I mean, we've got Seinfeld to thank for, you know, I'm going to butcher the quote, but it has to do with, you know, most people, uh, public speaking is their number one fear. Second is death. <laughs> so that means most most people would rather be in the casket than delivering the eulogy. So, yes. you know, it is a very, a very strong ouch, right? So for me to be able to bring healing salves to this pain of society, I'm, I'm more than happy and honored to be able to work with people that are nervous or uh, don't, don't feel that, that they have the right to speak to an audience. You know, I've had a number of cases where, I've coached with someone um, and then they stepped into a, a really robust, fully expressed version of themselves in a work environment and came back just really grateful with amazing results, like a, a promotion or just a sense of, wow, I, you know, every time I worked with a graduate mathematician um, at Rutgers University and, you know, she was not not secure in herself and there was anxiety and like wanting this wanting knowing knowing that there's something more and not having access to it and so we coached for a little while and now she just steps into her mathematical character she puts on the role of professor and steps on the stage of the classroom and owns the room and she has no problem doing that now which is really remarkable that is really empowering i i know with job interviews a lot of times, the ones who are confident when they interview get the better paying jobs. So if you're knowledgeable and qualified, just like an athlete would have a coach to prepare them for a competition, having a coach like you to prepare for, you know, a stressful event. How yes, and there's, on, there's ongoing things, too, people that are, you know, are constantly going for jobs like uh, like an actor right so you've got audition after audition after audition having someone to work with uh, and you know bounce ideas off or have another set of eyes that can that can bring in a perspective that you can't see without that yeah uh, it's just yeah it's really fun well how do people get a hold of you I, you have a website I do and it's it will continue to grow and shift as our Technological times are growing and shifting, but for now, people can check out www.nextlevelimprov.com, and there's a way to get in touch with me via email there, and uh, we, we can get back to you. It'll, it'll go right to our email, and we'll set up an appointment. You can set up a consult. I've got classes coming up. I'm, I'm currently offering classes up in the... Midwest, I guess it is now. It's it's uh, Indiana. I'm in Elkhart, Indiana, uh -huh. for uh, a six week uh, class with a performance at the end. So people that are wanting to take improv classes with with others, uh, they can come in one on one. Well, with me in person and a group of uh, we're going to have 20 people in that class as a cap. They can come and take a physical class with me or, you know, get in touch with me on, on the website and bring me out into your company. We can coach one-on-one -on -one online. Um, there's a lot of a lot of opportunities now given our, our technological age. Awesome. And I will have that 
um, that link to your website, www.nextlevelimprov.com. I'll have that on my website so people can go there. Great, great. Well, my audience, a lot of them are parents with children with special needs. Do you have any recommendations for them? I, you know, they're under a lot of stress. Yes. Oh my gosh. Um, well, <laughs> go get a massage. Like you love up on yourself. Give yourself some, some time, some play time, some self care. I call it care for the caregivers. And it's, it's so essential that we, um, that we get time uh, where we're feeding ourselves and loving ourselves first and foremost. And then, yeah, I mean, what, what for, I mean, kudos, kudos. Thank you for, for being um, light bearers. I look at um, parents with, with children with special needs as true warriors and um, amazingly uh, open-hearted, loving beings that they would, uh, would be entrusted with, the care of such young um, and formidable minds. So there's something honorable about all of you. And I, I want, you know, to encourage you. I want like having your own sense of play and being willing to, to see life as a game and, and look for the gifts in each moment because we only ever have this moment and as challenging or as delightful as it is, in every moment, I always have the choice as to how I choose to interpret it. And am I choosing to interpret it through the eyes of a character that sees life as stressful or hard? Or am I choosing to interpret it through the eyes of someone who sees grace and love? And my invitation would be in those moments when you feel stressed, find a way to feel the love and trust that everything is in perfect order. I call it divine timing. We're always playing the scene of our lives that we're meant to play in any given moment and to play it all out and to find the joy. That is beautiful. Julie, thank you so much. So my guest, Julie Botton, and you can get the link to her website. Thank you. And Julie, I hope you have a great day. Thanks for all you do. Thank you. Likewise, Emma Lou, I appreciate you. Be well.